and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Joining me in this episode of the podcast is Dr. Waheed Aryan, whose story is, quite honestly, extraordinary. And it would be tempting at this point to perhaps even add unbelievable to its description because Wahid's journey from war-torn Afghanistan to his life now as a doctor in the UK is an example of focus, perseverance, hope and inspiration in adversity. Listeners, I've read Wahid's book In the Wars and I was honestly and utterly gripped. He was also put on my radar by friend of the podcast, Dr. Rupi Orgela, who thought Wahid was exactly the kind of person I would love to speak to and he wasn't wrong. Born in Afghanistan, Wahid's childhood was spent fleeing from war. He and his family left the home in Kabul to find sanctuary in the refugee camps of Pakistan, narrowly avoiding bombs, bullets and the Taliban on the way. Wahid's health took a turn for the worse once they reached the camps, and while the entire family had battled malaria, Wahid became very ill with TB. It was a visit, though, to a doctor at this time that was hugely pivotal. He was treated with kindness, care and compassion, and the doctor... On realising he was a curious and inquisitive child, gifted him with a stethoscope and a textbook. Combined with Wahid returning to full health, this experience cemented the idea that he wanted to be a doctor and share the same kindness, compassion and healing he had felt with others. At the age of 15, Wahid, fearing for his safety, left for the UK, although his passage was not entirely legitimate and his first experiences on British soil involved the police and a short stay in a detention centre. Undeterred and motivated by the opportunities afforded to him, he began working in shops selling door-to-door, but his real goal was education and to become a doctor. What's really stood out for me in this story is, instead of focusing on what he didn't have, which given his circumstances would have been easy, Wahid focused on finding out what he needed, and as you'll hear in our conversation, he reverse-engineers his problems. Every roadblock he came up against, he reverse-engineered it to find a solution. I'll let him share the details of his story, which he does so well during our conversation, but he has since gone on to found the pioneering charity Arian Teleheal, which works to share medical expertise, healthcare and innovation through a network of volunteers in the UK via smartphone to low resource countries and listeners, it is saving lives. Wahid's story is one of ambition, hope, healing past traumas, inspiration, giving, generosity and compassion and of moving the needle of progress. I can't recommend his book enough. Trust me, if you enjoy this conversation, you'll be gripped by the way where he tells his story. And I will, of course, share the link to the book in the show notes. But I am so delighted that he had the time to come on the podcast. So please do join me in welcoming Dr. Waheed Aryan onto The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome, a very, very warm welcome to the podcast, Dr. Waheed Aryan. How are you? Thank you so much, uh, Emma Gans, for very kindly inviting me. I'm very well. How are you doing today? I'm I'm really well, and I'm also <laughs> I've got podcaster nerves because your story is so incredible, and I invited you on the podcast because there is so much inspiration to be taken from 
your story that I'm so desperate for my listeners to hear it. <laughs> so oh, I just want to um, first of all say thank you. And also listeners, I read uh, Wahid's book In the Wars and it's an extraordinary tale of, well, okay. When you wrote it, what was the objective? What were you hoping mm. people would take away from it? Thank you so much, Emma, for those kind words. I would say that we all have uh, uh, stories to tell. Um, and I hope in some way that my story resonates with your audience um, to inform them and inspire some who may be going through adversity um, and uh, difficult times. I think we've all been through difficult times. That's Writing this book is one way for me to heal my own traumas of the past, to recount, process them, uh, and secondly, to hopefully inform uh, the audience as well of what's actually going in conflict zones and in low resource countries uh, as well as how we can find inspiration sometimes in the deep in, in very very darkest moments of our lives uh, and also how we can help give uh, giving is actually a, a means that we can through which we can heal ourselves as well as uh, give to the society I think it would be so easy to focus on where you are now because that's the end of the Hollywood, so not the end of the Hollywood story, but it is something of a Hollywood ending, isn't it? Everything that you've achieved, if you list it out now, it could, it could be so seductive to get caught up in all of that. But where does your story actually begin? I'm really sorry, Emma. The dog is barking in the background. <laughs> are you happy with that? That's okay. I'll just do a little um, thing at the top and say there's a little bit of background noise. Don't worry. Okay. Well, uh, again, that's very kind of you, Emma, to say that. The way I reflect on my life is not to look at the achievements. Um, the way um, I see it is reflect on the how a human being, in this case myself, um, my family, my siblings, as well as... Um, so many other people who are in my position can actually go find the strength to go through adversity such as war and then come out of it the other end uh, inspired uh, not broken but inspired and come with their own dreams and then turn those dreams into realities uh, as human beings we do have a lot of resources we do have a lot of inner strength and i hope through this book i'm conveying that um, so in, in a way, this is not just uh, my achievements. I hope that many people can look towards it and see that there is always light at the end of the tunnel if we persevere despite facing adversity over adversity. Um, secondly, I wouldn't necessarily put my achievements in, in a huge category uh, somewhere and say like, wow, look at me. I don't think that works that way in, as human beings. Speaking from a lens of compassion. I think it's actually about giving. Everything else um, comes secondary. So for me, whether it's the accolades or international recognitions, um, I would say it's teamwork. Um, there's so many people involved as well. And that's another important factor is that on my own, I would not have been able to achieve all this. Throughout my life, there have been people who have helped me, uh, who've been kind to me. So that uh, is very important to highlight that it's on our own, we can't do uh, we can't uh, achieve much. And so collectively, we can make an impact in the world. Uh, we can give and we can help people. And that's hopefully the message. Mm. 
Um, even when I uh, DM'd you on Instagram after I read the book, the first thing you did was deflect the compliment and say, it's not just me, it's so many, so many people. Yeah. My story wouldn't exist without the help and support of so many others. Well, in a way, I think I would take that compliment. Uh, yes, <laughs> you're trying to force me to take that compliment. I will take it. Yes, thank you. Um, yes, there are people um, who can think in a way that see there's a future, even if it doesn't exist. So I would give that myself as a compliment is that sometimes I look at things um, apparently impossible to do. And I turn them in that I look at it as a challenge for me to tackle it and to see how can I achieve um, this goal. But that goal has to really resonate with a dream, with a vision. If we don't have that fire innate, fire in us, that inspiration to do something, we will not be able to overcome the many hurdles along the way. So, for example, tackling a huge task, whether it's uh, now the Olympics is ongoing, the, the whole glory is not just about the medal. I think for a lot of them, there's a lot more to it. If you look mm -hmm. into the stories of these uh, Olympic champions, they really have a lot of uh, fire in them to keep going at it day in and out for four years, five years, until they achieve it for some people for 10 years until they get their dream, that medal. But it's not just about that medal for them. It's, it's a lot more that they overcome their own thoughts, their own feelings, uh, their own um, pursuing their own dreams. So for me, that's, uh, yes, uh, the idea of, um, for me to overcome the challenges of war and then to get into Cambridge University, uh, Harvard and Imperial in itself is uh, is big achievement. I, I agree on that and uh, I'm not deflecting on that. But also when I see it, the bigger thing of helping people globally through our charity, that's something that I couldn't achieve on my own and that I soon realized. So on one hand, I think we need to understand how much we can do on our own and then understand our limitations and then bring in people who can help us. That has been one of the biggest secrets. Uh, so for me, one, visualizing something that doesn't exist uh, and foreseeing the future that, yes, we can actually change the future. But on the other hand, find the right talents as well and bring them on board and inspire them. Uh, then with a combination of using compassion with innovation, we can do a lot. Mm. When I was thinking about having this conversation mm. with you and listeners will have heard in the introduction, your life began in war and you were very aware of danger that was around you all the time, I guess. And I, as I was reading the book, if you didn't know the ending, if you didn't know where you are now, I think you would not believe what happens next. Where you, If you're at the beginning of the book, you get halfway through and you would think, I can't believe this. This is this is absolutely extraordinary. So I was thinking, yeah. I'm just going to spend the entire conversation with Wahid saying, but how? But how? And I think one of the most yeah. profound things that happened for you, uh, and I wonder if you would agree, is when you were ill and had mm -hmm. tuberculosis, and it was the kindness of a, a doctor that yeah. actually shaped you and, and I guess shaped a big part of the story. It did. Um, so I'll just explain my background um, story to your audience here. But before we get to that, is that when I reflect on my life as well, I also ask this question, how? So you're not the only one here. Um, but again, that shows that as human beings, on one hand, we do have a lot of resilience, uh, strength in us. On Secondly, 
life turns out in ways that we we might not have imagined for many of us. So I think we, we need to have faith as well. Faith plays a big part. And thirdly, what exactly you've mentioned is the kindness of people. So we should not underestimate that. So sometimes when people are going through a really adverse situation, they should factor in faith, they should factor in the kindness, and that they will be light at the end of the tunnel. Now, coming to my life story, um, I was born in 1983 during the Afghan-Soviet conflict in Kabul, Afghanistan, in the capital. I was born into war. I didn't know what the reality was otherwise. Most of uh, my time was spent in the first five years hiding from the daily rockets, the bombs and the shellings in cellars with the rest of our family. They were usually helicopter gunships in the sky, tanks outside. And my mother was the only person who was looking after a big family. Uh, my father had fled the military service, so he was in hiding in mountains um, in a faraway province called Logar. He uh, had to flee because anybody who was serving for the military, uh, they would be sent to the front line, and that would mean a death sentence. So for his own safety, he had to flee. And my mother, he was, uh, she was uh, looking after us with very little resources. Um, in winter, she would go out into marketplaces to find some jackets with holes and then mismatching clothes uh, with, with, to cover, um, uh, to keep us warm from the freezing cold temperatures. And we didn't have much food, uh, very little money that was coming from the, the shops in front of our house. Apart from that, that was it. But she didn't give up. Despite the difficulties, despite the fact that the husband was away and uh, they were raising, she was raising us on her own. Uh, the only couple of happy memories that I have from the entire five years is one day being taken to a park by my mother uh, to give us an ice cream with my cousins. And uh, one other day that was my father in his military uniform before he fled, he... Um, kneeled down and he gave me this massive kite and then he disappeared. So those were the couple of uh, good memories that I have, but the rest of the time was really traumatic memories. Of course, I don't remember everything, um, but I do have those patchy memories of trauma. After five years, um, every so often we had to go to Loga province three to four months to visit my father. He will appear suddenly out of nowhere and we will be absolutely over the moon. So I think that separation from father as well um, on a continual, uh, continuous basis, that was really traumatic. We would be there for about five, ten days and then we would come back to the capital and he would go again uh, into hiding um, in, in Loga province. So finally, we, my parents got to the conclusion that one, it would be safe for us to leave Afghanistan. Secondly, that we would be together as a family. And the only solution for that was to go to uh, to flee to Pakistan as refugees, where millions of other Afghan refugees were fleeing at the time. And when they decided, sadly, the situation was such that we had to go on donkeys and horses in, in very and take very dangerous route rather than use the normal borders. Okay? The government wouldn't allow normal movement of uh, people in and out of the country into Pakistan. And the routes that um, my parents took with another 20 families as a big caravan was a very dangerous one. That was the same route used by the guerrilla fighters, Mujahideen, to bring in weapons. So 
any activity that was seen in broad daylight by the government forces, whether it's helicopters, whether it's uh, jets or the tanks, they would destroy anybody. So hence, we had to do our journey um, at night on donkeys and horses. I had a uh, a white horse that I was very adamant to to get on it. The name was Spin. Spin means white in Pashto. I loved that horse. So that was my little tale that uh, traveling from Loga province all the way to uh, Pakistan. And we came under the attack three times, which we miraculously survived. The only food we had was oiled bread. Uh, and we had to rely on people's kindness again along the way. Random people in villages, they will open the doors early in the morning when it was becoming a bit lighter. And for us to stop traveling, we would just say, oh, can you please accommodate us? And there were like 20 families, you know, with their children, women, men. Um, they would say, no problem. Women in one room, men in another room, uh, children, whichever room. And they would give us whatever they had. So I think that sort of kindness, despite that, that trauma and everything, really stands out for me as well, that we can find the positives despite those challenges. So that was kind of the first five years and a journey to Pakistan. Uh, and we did come under the attack three times. And there's a significant story within that. I, th I think it's within those five years is the the time that you were vulnerable to an attack and you and your father took shelter mm -hmm. in an oven and your you, it was when you realized when your father was was saying if I don't make it you have to take the family and you realized in that moment you were second in command and actually there was a heck of a lot of responsibility potentially on your shoulders. You've absolutely highlighted the pivotal points absolutely which I wanted to mentioned uh, in the book. Yes, the first time we, we came in at the attack was one morning when everybody was tired and it was becoming lighter. So the caravan was stationed under the trees uh, to hide the women, children, donkeys and horses. I came with my father, I insisted to come with my father to, to the local village to find somewhere before we bring in uh, everybody else. Midway through going to, to towards the village, we were spotted by a spy plane and my father knew what, what was coming. So he took me in his arms. He ran straight towards the village. It was quite a few minutes uh, uh, distance. I had no idea. His heart was pumping. My heart was pumping really hard as well. He was, when he arrived in the village, he was knocking on one door, another door, until he found that one house that was empty. He ran in there. I had no idea what he was frantically looking for. And I saw that there was an oven. He went down into the oven. He grabbed me in his arms and he covered me entirely. Uh, and before the jets arrived, um, he told me that, listen, you know, if I we don't make it here, if I die here, this is what you're going to do is to take your family with you to Kabul, Afghanistan, go to your uncle um, and, and, and ask him to help you there. So you'll be uh, the leader of the family. And before he finished, the bombardment started. Uh, the jets, they started hitting us from every direction. I could actually feel the bullets coming onto the ceiling, to the, um, the windows, uh, the walls. And the huge missiles were launched at the village as well. I, it sounded like it lasted for, for a, you know, a lifetime. I think it was about five minutes or seven minutes. And after that, the helicopter gunships came as well, and they attacked with their, with their artillery. 
um, miraculously that that's when we survived all that and when we came out of the oven my father was really searching to see if I was hurt and he was crying he was, you know completely in a shock as well um, I wasn't hurt he wasn't hurt we came out and then we marched back towards uh, our families along the way there were two other occasions when we came out of the attack as well um, but we again miraculously survived them before we made it to a refugee camp in Peshawar, Pakistan, where millions of other refugees in various camps were living. I know we're talking about we, we will talk about this uh, encounter that you have with the doctor who was showed you that kindness when you were young. But you talked a little while ago about faith, and I wonder when you survive something like that, whether you examine well, was this for a reason? What's that reason? And did it make you think that you had a greater purpose? That's a really good question, actually. Um, I think in terms of fate, we, we, one, we didn't have a choice. We had to have fate. Secondly, yes, we, we believed uh, in, but there's a day that there will be a day where we'll be safe. I don't think the bigger purpose crossed my mind. Um, and for us, it was surviving one day at a time. And hopefully that's a, a message if I can give as well to um, some listeners here. So if they're really going to really, really tough times, it's taking each day as it comes. Uh, that's what my parents would used to do. Um, my father, the optimistic in the family, uh, my mother, an amazing woman who had a sixth sense about all the dangers, whereas my father was the one who was also cheerful about things. Like, Come on, you know, I've heard this good news. Tomorrow, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. And my mum would just look at him, uh, what are you talking about? You can't you see all, all the misery that's happening? But now I see that, you know, those small moments, those small positives were actually what kept my dad and mum going. Um, so that, and that actually probably is coming from stemming from faith as well uh, so for them to believe in that and uh, i i started having that sort of, of mantra in life as well to look for the small positives which i learned from my experiences and from my parents so when we came to the refugee camp there again the conditions were absolutely inhumane well, initially we were safe but the conditions were inhumane as a family of eight to ten we were living initially in a tent like so many other families and soon most of us uh, suffered from malaria. There are mosquitoes everywhere and you don't have any means to prevent those mosquitoes attacking you. And they're buzzing the whole night during the day. Oh my God, they're horrendous. Um, and within the, about two to three months, I started coughing. And I was coughing so much that I started bringing up a bit of blood as well. And that's when my parents got really worried that it didn't sound like the ordinary cough uh, as a child that we would suffer and you would just uh, uh, shrug it off. So they took me to a refugee camp doctor. And when I saw that there was a massive queue to this refugee doctor uh, outside, people with almost nothing. By the time when we made it there, it was, I think, after about a couple of hours, we went into this room, this a dark room with one light bulb somewhere in the corner. And this guy sitting behind a little uh, desk with uh, very little there, uh, just a paper. Uh, and he he had a smile on, on his face. I really made 
I was curious, why is this guy smiling? You know, he is in this really hot room uh, trying to see what people after people, but he still got the smile. So that's when I became curious about medicine. And then when he examined me, he gave my father the bad news that you know my condition was too severe for him to treat and he had to send me, refer me to a specialist in Peshawar City. Uh, and my father immediately the next day took me to Peshawar City to find a pulmonologist, a chest specialist. I saw this chest specialist there and he ordered uh, an x-ray. And uh, the x-ray, so this chest specialist is sitting in Khyber Bazar, that's the name of the, the big buzzing city. Um, it's like one of the shops, you go in there and that's the, the it's written on, on, on the back of the door and he's a chest specialist. And the next door there is the x-ray machines. They, he asked me to get an x-ray, you go in there I got an x-ray, he took the x-ray and put it against the whiteboard. Uh, when he examined me, he weighed me that I'd lost a lot of weight as well. I was just like a walking skeleton. Um, he very kindly asked me to just sit outside and he was speaking with my dad. Uh, I think I was a pretty curious child, so I went in and tried to listen to what he was going to say to my dad. Uh, and he told my dad that I had about 60-70% chance of dying because my tuberculosis was pretty advanced. And I was so malnourished that my body wouldn't be able to fight it off. Um, so my father said, just don't tell me numbers. Tell me what to do to save my son. I will do anything. So my father would not take defeat. He would not accept it, you know, despite those figures. Despite the fact that he didn't have the means to feed me, he said, I will figure out. Uh, and then he told my father, you have to feed him uh, meat, fruit, milk. All the things that we take sometimes for granted here, that's what was missing in the refugee camp. My father said, I'll do it. And he got the medications. We came back to the refugee camp. And that's when their treatment started, both from the nutrition side as well as from the medication side. And we kept going back and forth to this doctor. And that's when I um, forged friendship with him. Uh, beside my conversation with my parents and my siblings, my very intellectual conversation was with this doctor. So I really looked, was looking forward to seeing him every two, three months. I would ask him all sorts of questions. You know, what is this? What is that? Uh, how does this work? How does that work? And he saw that, you know, I was curious about medicine. Um, so finally, he, on one of the last visits, he gave me a stethoscope and a black and white textbook that there were so many pictures uh, in it and I, I, I couldn't read any anything in it, but I was so amused by all the pictures and they became my toys. Uh, I had no toys in the refugee camp, they became my toys and that man became my inspiration because on one hand I saw the power of healing, that he could heal me. On the other hand, I saw so much suffering. There were families who were actually suffering far more than we did. For example, there were orphans there, you know, without parents. There were people who had were disabled because of war. You can imagine, you know, what they were going through. So I saw that, oh my God, you know, this medicine can actually treat people. You can actually do good. You can, you can heal people. So that was uh, me being inspired to do medicine. So we stayed for three years and we came to Afghanistan after that. It's extraordinary because it, um, it's, it is that seed of passion that that experience mm. really sowed um and you never lost sight of that i mean it just seemed to be that once you had had that experience it was embedded it was it almost that it was just wasn't even going to be a question you were going to become a doctor was it that clear well for me i think it was uh, gradually that um, 
inspiration became bigger and bigger. So we can get inspired, in my view, at various stages of our lives, when from our experiences, interactions with people, when we see inspiration in people, we talk with them, they can give us some sort of an idea of what to do, things especially if we haven't thought about, and it starts burning that fire. But then, actually, it depends on us as well as the environment. So when we came back to Afghanistan in 1991, the civil war broke out in 1992. And that was, again, a street-by-street -street fight, because of which we had to, again, um, hide in uh, cellars from the daily rockets, the bomb. But that inspiration was with me, that I saw that, wow, you know, I can heal people um, through, through studying medicine. And, and I saw the importance of medicine during the civil war as well on a daily basis, seeing people dying, seeing people um, being hurt by bombs or illnesses, severe illnesses. But on the other hand, I could see actually people, doctors in hospitals and various places, um, in clinics, treating people and doing those. So that kind of inspiration became bigger and bigger. And I kept pursuing it more and more. I became um, inspired by it. Most of the education that happened in the cellars was through self-reading. Whatever books were available outside, and I used to tune in to BBC World Service to um, learn English. So that's how I learned English uh, a little bit. Um, and I found a window through which I could see the rest of the world. And that gave me um, escape from war. So for me, when I was tuning in, I was completely zooming into that world where people were having dinner, I have no idea what I was listening to, but I could remember um, listening, people saying like, oh, I'm going out with my friends tonight. I'm doing this. I'm meeting for dinner. And sometimes they would even say like, oh, I'm going to wash my dog. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> you're washing your dog. We don't even have, have water here. So that was something that stuck with me. And I said, I will ask people, is that true or not? Did you actually wash your dogs? <laughs> <laughs> because we, we, we just simply didn't have water, uh, especially in refugee camps. They would bring in tanks of water every two days. You have to fill in your, your little um, reserve, reservoir of water and you would just drink from that. That was your clean uh, basis. So that was my escape, um, escape to uh, an imaginary world. Then I would, before going to bed, I would just also imagine that I will have a nice flat and that I would be going to school, I'll be uh, driving. Uh, you know, can you imagine I still can't drive? So that, that didn't come true. Um, <laughs> so um, I'll be driving to work and I'll have this family um, and I'll be you know, becoming a doctor. So all that, and that, will, that way I would just send myself to sleep. So sometimes actually escaping into an imaginary world works. And that probably was something that I was kept pursuing as well. Um, subconsciously, despite the war ongoing, despite not knowing what the future would hold. Uh, so the, the, the civil war lasted between 92 and 96. And again, there was a lot of internal displacement that we had to flee from one part of the city to another and from one part of the country to the other, um, just for safety. And in 96, the Taliban took over uh, and the, the, the conditions became worse, um, especially the economical condition that the borders were closed, the um, 
and, and there were many other problems as well. Um, and because of that, my father had to drive a taxi for six months to be able to afford a sacrifice uh, for, for the entire family. And in 99, I came to, um, I was 15 years old, I came to an age where my life was actually um, under threat. Uh, and there was a risk for me to be taken to the military service. And one morning we woke up and we found that an entire house was flattened by a rocket. Um, and everybody else had gone and just vanished overnight with it. And so that's when my parents decided that, you know what, yes, we can let go of you now to go and find your own way somewhere uh, and, and go to the UK. And that story in and of itself is completely extraordinary because it wasn't as simple as buying a ticket to the UK. You had to yeah. procure passage and it wasn't legitimate is probably the sort of fairest way of saying it. Yes, and it was dodgy. You actually, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you were you were told to destroy your passport on the plane, but that uh, and I won't spoil the book. Please do read the book, listeners, because it's wonderful. But unfortunately, that activity caught the attention, and your first your first footsteps on British soil were essentially running away from a police officer, having a scuffle, yeah. and your first night in the UK was spent in felt. Is it Felton? Yes, first prison. night was uh, in. Um... In a prison cell in Heathrow. The next day I was taken to Feltham. So I stayed there in Feltham for about 10 days. Absolutely. So again, my escape from Afghanistan was not straightforward. And that brings it to another important point is that refugees, when they flee war, they don't have legal routes. They don't have ways to knock on the embassies, on the door of the embassy and say, you know what, hey, you know, I'm fleeing from war. My life is at risk. Um, can you give me a visa or can you take me out? And that's something I think a huge misconception and misinformation that's circulating. People say like, oh, why don't you come legally? Why do you take to cross the channel through these dinghies? And you know, people wouldn't risk their lives if they don't have um, if they don't have to. So first of all, they flee war, they flee conflict. And hopefully I have given some context of what the conditions in a conflict zones are like. And what the conditions are like in the refugee camps. Some people might say, oh, why don't you stay in refugee camps? Because the conditions are, yes, there are no bombs, but they're absolutely inhumane. And thirdly, when they leave the uh, conflict zone, there are no legal routes. I had to really figure out all this, how to get to, to, to get out. Uh, and I went from embassy to embassy. Um, there was no route. And the only route that was available was to put uh, $10,000 in the hands of an agent, a travel agent uh, in, in Pakistan, which was the route that was taken by thousands of other refugees at the time. And they would get you a password, which later on I found out to be dodgy. Uh, but it worked. And that password would, was the means for refugees to flee conflict, to find safety. Not a better life in, in the first instance is just safety. And that better life was something that obviously everybody wants a better life, but to, to get out of conflict. So like the, one of those refugees, I had to find my way, find an agent, and my father had to sell our house and uh, jewellery, my mom's jewellery as well, to give that money. But initially we were told that that was uh, a legitimate way, but people wouldn't know. You know at the time when you're fleeing war conflict, you, you, you will not question people how, how they're taking you out. As long as they have a track record, which this person had, one of our family friends had been in the UK 
And I called him and he said, yeah, yeah, this is the guy who took me. And that was my only link in the UK was this one guy. Um, so, which I trusted, uh, so that's why I trusted, uh, and my father trusted, and we had no choice but, but to do that. Uh, and when we arrived uh, in the UK, uh, when I arrived in the UK, yes, I was uh, handcuffed, I was sent to prison, and they, they said that your passport is dodgy. Uh, and I did something naughty on the plane as well, which uh, <laughs> was uh, trying to burn my passport, um, which I wasn't told that, you know, you shouldn't uh, do that on the plane. Later on, I found that. So I obey the law very well now whenever I'm flying. Um, <laughs> but that was it in the beginning. Um, so 10 days in Felton. And then after that, I was released. They found out that, okay, he's a refugee coming from Afghanistan. He's fled war. They dropped the charges. Uh, and that was the beginning of a new life for me, that I sought asylum. Uh, and um, I made the application again for the next few years until I got the refugee status. I was living in very uncertain times because I, at any point, they could detain me, they could send me back to Afghanistan because my application was being processed. Um, so during that time, I was looking, when I came to the UK, starting with sometimes when you talk about starting fresh, yes, I started very fresh with no family support, little formal education, $100 in my pocket. So I received safety. I was very, very happy and very thankful for British people to give me that. But I also brought a dream with me, a dream to become a doctor. Uh, so that was a new beginning. And I looked around, I asked people, hey, um, how do I become a doctor? So that was the beginning of a journey for me to get an education. And that's what I find so extraordinary. So this has all happened, listeners, when Wahid's 15 years old. So imagine that, by yourself, one contact in the UK, is that right? Yes. And yes. once you're released from that prison, you've got to find your way on public transport, I'm guessing, or on foot, figure out where you're going. And even now, it just it makes the hairs on the back of my neck go up because I'm trying to imagine what I was like at 15. And what really strikes me about your story is this this having to live under the radar a little bit this you were sleeping yeah. on people's floors but the landlord you didn't want the landlords to know you were there because they'd get charged so you would leave before the sun came up and go there when the, in, in the darkness of night and as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? 
are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Leap on the floor. I mean, when I think about it and think of what, think of what you, how you lived, it's, it feels very stressful and I, I feel quite exhausted even just thinking about what you must have had to do. Was it exhausting? It was exhausting, but on the other hand, you, you can already see that what I'd left behind, it was, you know, mm. the bombs um, and everything else. So that's a sort of self-CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy that I adopted, one of my coping mechanisms of how I dealt with stress and the PTSD that I brought in from Afghanistan, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as anxiety. So one of my coping mechanisms was that to look at the positives uh, and encourage, take encouragement from what I was having rather than not having. Um, Mm. So for me, not being attacked, one day I was sitting in a square looking uh, up in the sky and I was feeling safe for the first time I could look into the sky without having the fear of uh, a bomb coming at me. And I was just seeing this uh, plane, this clear sky that was just going. That was absolutely magical for me. like that there are many other occasions for example having access to electricity clean water food yeah there are occasions when i used to uh, i didn't know what i was buying for example going to local buy a shop asking for um bread made in france instead of french bread or so there are many other occasions (laughs) i kept learning all that stuff But the positives were that um, I was in a much better position. Um, Although I I started um, to suffer more from the signs of PTSD, for example, standing next Mm -hmm. to a tube um, and and the sound of the tube that would make make me jump. Um, I was clenching my fist um, really tightly. I wouldn't be able to stand up um, in classrooms to even answer a question amongst 15 people. so these were kind of the, and then the flashbacks and uh, nightmares and so on. But I thought, wow, that, that's just normal for people when they leave uh, war zones. But later on, I realized through my medical training that that's actually not normal. That's not normal. But the coping mechanisms helped me. I would recommend people if they, they have any of these signs to seek professional help. I didn't at the time because I didn't know, but my coping mechanism did help. Having faith, looking at the positives and exercise. X has tremendously mm. helped me and I've kept that with me um, along the way as well. So I kept going and asking, you know, how do I become a doctor? And they said, um, um, why don't you just uh, come on, Wahid, we know your background. You've left Afghanistan. You've left the war-torn country. You hardly have any education. And these were some of the people who knew uh, my background very well. And I said, why don't you just work like the rest of us um, in, in a chicken shop and then try to become a taxi driver and then you know, maybe you will own a chicken shop one day. So, of course, these are all really hard-working jobs, and I admire hard work. But my vision was not to become a chicken wing specialist. So I wanted to become a doctor, and I said, like, guys, you know, how do I do this? So I didn't get any positive results. So for me, I put it straight up there that, okay, I want to become a doctor. How? Okay, mm-hmm. and then the next step was... I'll go to universities. So I kept going from King's College, I went to Queen Mary, to the admissions office. And I said, how do I become a doctor? <laughs> That's simple. And they, they said, okay. They, they were um, 
taken by surprise that somebody is coming and asking about this, like, oh, which school did you go, do you go to? And I said, I don't go to school. I said, wow, okay. Uh, but they were being polite. They gave me um, the prospectus and they said, uh, you know, these are our requirements to get into medical school. I said, wow, okay, so you have requirements. They said, yes, we do have requirements. And then I would circle what you require to get in there. So, for example, doing English, chemistry, biology, and uh, a few other subjects in A-levels. So that's how I kind of like, that was for me uh, the aim and how to get to that aim. I just broke it down. Regardless of, yes, absolutely. Regardless of what people said to me, you know, don't do this or do that. And that's how I've been doing everything else since then. If I see that I've got a name, if I want to solve a problem, first of all, I'm not going to go and listen to people's opinions. I will try to work it out myself and ask people for help. Ask people who are the experts, but not people who are not the experts, not their opinions. So I just immediately, you know, the odds are probably millions to one against me there. But for me, that didn't matter. For me, it was like, how could I do it? So that's how I knew that I had to polish on my English. I was coming up with really kind of like weird pronunciations from time to time. I still have it here and there. Uh, but then I thought, wow, okay, we're here. I need to really uh, <laughs> get up to the mark with my English. Um, so I started learning English on my own, uh, GCSE books. On way to work, I started working on Edgeware Road in London um, as a salesman, uh, also as um, a kitchen porter and as a cleaner. But on way to work, back from work and in the evening, in London buses, I was self-studying for a year until 2000. 2000, I started going to night college because I still had to work during the day to support myself, my younger brother and my family back in Afghanistan. But that was, that was it. So for me, pursuing my dream and trying to work it out on my own with it, asking for help here and there and kept going. I was really much uh, not giving up. I knew the fact that, you know, I had sacrificed so much of my childhood at that time. And I suddenly found all the opportunities that were just in front of me. And I thought, you know, if I don't try, I will not know. That's what really struck me about this particular period is the focus. Mm. Because it would have been in the book listeners when I was reading it, I just thought, how did you maintain that focus? Because you've talked about coming from war, from refugee camps. And suddenly you're in London with the bright lights and chicken shops. I mean, that's, you know, they are great. And all of these wonderful things. And it would have just, I, there's a part of me that thinks it must be quite tempting to just relax into that and just decompress. But the focus of the fact that you wanted to get your education and in order to get the education that you wanted, you couldn't do it at one college because you didn't have the credits or the means so in order to get the qualifications that you wanted you split your courses across three colleges which obviously it just made me think there's no scope for can't it's it's a case of you reverse engineer it as you've just explained and instead of saying i can't do that it's three colleges the commute's going to be awful you just go oh yeah i have to split them across three colleges okay let's do that there's just no scope for it not being possible you're absolutely right. And I think that's something that I would give myself credit for that is that not giving up. And I hope that um, your audience, uh, your listeners here, they, they take that as well. That's so important. The, the fact that it's during lifetime, 
it's quite easy sometimes to just throw in the towel. I think sometimes, you know, if we are sick and we need help, we have to throw in the towel. You know, you can't just say like, oh, you know, I've got this cough going on. I'm not going to just give in and something. <laughs> there are times you definitely need to seek help. But there are times that when you know that you're pursuing a dream, when you know that that dream can lead to something, for me, becoming a doctor meant something. And that's really important to figure out because that will give you the determination. So if we know that a dream leads for me was able being able to support myself, my family, and I knew the hardship they'd been through, and for me that was a big means of uh, a means to support them, and also heal people, because I knew that my parents were suffering at the time. They had to go to Pakistan to get some treatment, and like them, there were so many other families as well. I didn't have such a big vision that one day I will be contributing to saving lives around the globe. It was mainly just my family and a few relatives here and there, and for me to be to, to have a better future. So that kept me going at the time. But then we have to also understand that the vision can become bigger and bigger, and that's how we can become more ambitious. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, that's magical. And I think that's when we've struck really gold in, in, in a way that our vision, on one hand, it can, becomes very fused with our um, inspiration. So if we can find that, that if we have that fire to, to go after our vision, that's just absolutely lightning. And then you'll figure out ways of how to do it, rather than looking for ways how not to do it. Uh, so that's, that will, I think, I hope I've explained that. But it, there are times, you know, if I'm asked to do something, I will find ways to say no. Because I'm just simply not interested. <laughs> so it's not about, you know, persevering with everything that's irrelevant in our lives. It's just finding two or three things. For example, family. You know, we protect our family. We support our family with our heart and soul. You'll do anything. We will do anything for our family. That's a good example. Um, you know, because they, they give us everything. That's who we are. Secondly, if we can find what we want to do in our life, just, you know, figure out that vision and passion and then, bringing passion into it, magic magic happens. So that was it. After about uh, working um, during the day and studying at night time, I managed to get uh, five A's uh, and that uh, in, in ASA levels. And I did five because I wanted to make sure that I could compete with the rest who would bring in A stars from GCSE. I didn't have any GCSEs. Um, and... and when did you set your sights on Cambridge? My sights were set on Cambridge when I met um, a guy who was studying at Cambridge University. I was working as a salesman for British Gas. Uh, um, and I went to this guy's house who was our team leader. And there was this guy sitting. He said, oh, I've just came from Cambridge University. He talked about it. And at that time, I had got my AS results. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my AS. I've just got my results. I've got A's in them. I said, wow, so why don't you apply to Cambridge? So I had heard about Cambridge University and I knew the reputation, but I said, oh, no, no, Cambridge is not for me. I said, well, you've got your A's. Why don't you come with me? I'll show you around. He took me to Cambridge University. I was absolutely blown away. Um, I was blown away when I saw that, you know, the magnitude, the gardens, the beauty, the history. And I saw that there were actually people who were pretty ordinary there. Uh, A lot of ordinary people (laughs) walking up and down the street. I was like, 
wow, yeah, all that history is just living and breathing there. Um, and at that time, I had watched a, a film called Beautiful Mind. Mm. Uh, so I was really into academia as well. And I was like, wow. So it, I, I immediately became inspired. I became inspired, but I was also wary of the, of the deficiencies in my education in the background. So despite all my optimism, I was still quite hesitant. So I think Wahid, this might be a little bit too big of a jump for me to, to do. But then I asked for some help. Uh, and actually, I was more inspired to apply when I asked for help at one of the colleges to prepare me, um, to prepare my application. I asked uh, this guy who was preparing students. He gave me time for half an hour. That was application, UCAS application form and interview. And in, in that half an hour, he just absolutely said everything negative about why I shouldn't even apply to medicine. You know, I'm not white. I'm a refugee. I don't have GCSEs. You know, I should be lucky to get into any medical school. Forget about Cambridge. Um, you're burning one of your UCAS choices. At that time, we only could apply to four medical universities at a time. It may still be the rule. So when I left that room, yeah, I burst out crying, but I just held myself together. It was... Uh, at uh, Kingsway College in uh, King's Cross. So I went up and down, I was pacing furiously. And then I said to myself, listen, Wahid, you know, if I've survived the bombs, you know, I've survived the shellings, how could I be fearful of applying to Cambridge University? And how could this guy put me off it? And that was it. I came, I took a donut kebab on my way, came home. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I'm going to apply to Cambridge University. And I was like, uh, took out my form. I wrote Cambridge right at the top. I said, that's it. I've been challenged now. So that was for me that, uh, you know, I'm going to prove this guy wrong. Um, so I started even preparing on my own to, to how to do the interview. Was that the first time somebody had really said to you, not for you, Wahid. I think probably it's been said many times before, but in my mind, I always blank that. That's the one way is that if there is something negative, somebody says it. If it's constructive, I think that one thing I've developed over the years is that I've become you know, a lot receptive of what people want to tell me something positive or negative to do something differently. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest successes um, or secret store success globally is that I, I listen to experts to tell me how to do things. But if I know deep down that something is right to do and I should do it, that's when I would blank people who say, you can't do it. If they can tell me how not to do it and then how to do it, I'll listen. But I, I am good at blanking people in that sense. So, you know what? I'll do it. I'll figure out. Um, so I don't know, actually, throughout life, probably I, that's been said to me many times before, but I can completely just escape my mind. But that struck with me because that was my dream to do medicine and then apply to Cambridge University. And I did. Uh, so even when I went for my Cambridge um, interview, I had no idea what to expect because a lot of the students were so well prepared. Uh, I mm. came into the interview room and I saw that, um, you know, they were escorted by parents. I didn't even know how to do my tie at the time. So one of the parents came in and helped me with that. Um, but when I went into the interview room, uh, I absolutely 
put everything on the line there. I, I put my passion, my determination, and I made it, made it very obvious how much I wanted it. And I think a lot of my question answers that I gave were wrong. Uh, but later on, I did find that actually I was uh, in the top five of the applicants in terms of uh, based on my interview performance because I was thinking a lot on my feet. So it actually worked for me uh, rather than against me not to be too prepared. It, that's what really struck me about when yeah. you were retelling the interview in the book. It wasn't you weren't trying to impress them in the sense of uh, you were trying to just answer their questions really well and very thoroughly. It wasn't about yeah. showboating. It was just giving, sharing as much of your knowledge as you possibly could. And as you say, thinking on your feet and saying, and if this wouldn't work, maybe we would do this. And it was the a very practical, uh, thorough response that you were giving. It was. I think my knowledge was limited. And I think probably I was at disadvantage in comparison to other students because I, I'm sure they were more knowledgeable than me, given the background of education that they had been to school so at that time, uh, that's the, the the real answer. But I think what worked for me was uh, my life experiences as well. So hopefully there is another lesson is that when we go through adversities, we do learn a lot of lessons. It makes us grow. And it actually made me become an adult even at that age when I was applying. So I was thinking like an adult. I was thinking like a leader. When they asked me, you know, how would you vaccinate? Well, that was one of the questions. If there is uh, not an epidemic at that time, it was just like, oh, if there's endemic, how would you do that? So immediately in my mind, I was thinking about the refugee camp. I was thinking about the localities of how to lock down and so on. So even now, it, it went all through my mind, as you know, to to make sure that it equally distributed but uh, the vaccine and to make sure there's no movement in and out. So all that we're discussing now, I was thinking about it in a scale of a small refugee camp to make sure that uh, my answers were kind of looking. So that's how I was visualizing those answers. So my life experiences and, and those adversities did help me, uh, mm. beside the fact that I brought in a lot of passion to the interview that to show them that I really wanted it. You know, I really, mm. really wanted to get in, <laughs> to just let me in. And I, and I would shake their hands at the end. I said, like, I really look forward to hearing from you. I was like, oh my God, look at this weirdo. <laughs> Uh, but it did work. Uh, so you have to make it obvious if you want somebody, you want something uh, and, and you want to get into to, uh, uh, somewhere. We have to make it obvious. We have to fight for it. And that was it. I'm really aware that we've hit three o'clock. Do I have do you have to go or do we have a few more minutes? No, that's carry on. Uh, we'll, we'll go for you. Oh, lovely. OK, <laughs> just tell me if you need to jump off the call. because I'm very aware no, that your not. time is very precious. No, so is okay, your time. Let's... Don't worry, Matt. I'm enjoying the talk. <laughs> You're saving lives. I'm telling stories. Um, I oh uh, no, so, to... so telling stories save lives. Trust me. It's uh, the the work, international work that we do. It is through uh, communicating. So communication is key. That's that's nice. I like that. I do want to fast forward from Cambridge. Mm. Um, I mean, because I could talk to you for a full eight hours about every single chapter in this book. But let's talk about the fact that you qualified, you became a doctor. Mm. And I guess you could sort of put in a little umbrella term, kind of against all odds, you really made it happen. And was the original intention to then go back and be a doctor in that refugee camp and take the skills that you had learned and take and mm. take them home, as it were? 
but at some point you realize that actually you would be better served staying here. Is that right? Yeah. So when I became a doctor in 2010, uh, after graduating from Cambridge University, um, I went to Imperial College in London to complete my studies and did a clerkship at uh, Harvard University. So 2010, when I became a doctor, it was an absolutely magical moment for me just to achieve that. One of the dreams that I had was to have that stethoscope around my neck. Then the question immediately for me was, you know, what do I do now? First of all, I wanted to give back to the community in Britain. Uh, so I started serving very proudly in the NHS. And for me, that was a way to repay the kindness that was shown to me. Of course, I had to work, I had to earn. But deep down, I also thought that, okay, this is my way of saving lives here in the UK. Um, but I also immediately turned my attention to giving back in Afghanistan uh, because I knew that people were suffering at the time. So for me, at that point, the decision, I think, was pretty much made that I had become British as well. So I, I had my Afghan values and... I think throughout the medical school, I came to a point that that I went through an identity crisis. And later on, I managed to bring, to fuse the two together that, you know, yes, of course, I'm very proud to call myself Afghan British. So that decision, I think at that point was made that, yes, I will stay in the UK, but see, let's see how I can also help Afghanistan. So I kept going back and forth to Afghanistan um, every three, four months during my holidays from work. Uh, whilst I was working really hard in the NHS, there is a lot of requirement as well for junior doctors to do with their portfolios, to do research presentations, lectures, and, and all that to compete. So on one hand, I was doing all that. On the other hand, during holidays, I was going back to, to help in any way. I would go from hospital to hospital. Again, that was another problem. How do I help? I put circle around that and I said, okay, go to hospital. Let's see if that works. So I kept going and um, my knowledge was again pretty limited as a junior doctor who's just started. I was a baby doctor. With my little knowledge, I, I actually ended up listening more to, to doctors on the ground to see what their problems were. Um, I would offer, can I do this? Can I do that? And I said, no, no, that's fine. Just, but they were happy just for me to be tagging along them because they felt, wow, there's somebody who's come from the UK He's living, you know, he, although he's been through war, but he's living a pretty privileged life, but he's listening to us. And I saw that that kindness in, in their eyes uh, and that kept rewarding me, that kept giving me more inspiration to keep talking to them. So that's how I networked with various hospitals for the first four or five years. Uh, and whenever I used to come back here to the UK, I would tell my colleagues in the NHS that how... Uh, things are progressing or not progressing well in Afghanistan and this is what I found and a lot of them would say how oh, can we help and I saw that so many other people were passionate about helping so that's when I started questioning can we actually take more volunteers on my own I couldn't do much could I take more volunteers with me from the UK NHS and take them to Afghanistan so that was how I approached that um, problem of, of lack of expertise on the ground through taking volunteers. So that solution, uh, number one, didn't work because whenever I was uh, trying to recruit somebody, 
at the end they will say, Wahid, um, everything sounds fantastic. We would love to help, but how about the bombs? I was like, mm, let me think about that. Okay. <laughs> I'll come to you about that one. Well, so that's something the politics, the logistics I couldn't solve for about five years. Um, although the government later on, uh, I managed to get to the hierarchy of the government as well, including the Minister of Public Health, including the Minister Advisor to the President. And they said, oh, we, we'll, we can guarantee their safety, we'll provide a safe house. But none of that materialized because they were fighting fire on a daily basis. It was not mm -hmm. their fault. Every day there was a new problem. And I soon realized that this, this is not working. So hopefully there is another lesson here as well that I learned is that you, if you have a problem, you're trying to find a solution, it may take a long time. But that solution, you can iterate. You can edit it later on as long as you don't lose sight of the problem and the people who are experiencing problem so that's an innovation trick uh, that usually when when something doesn't work you just iterate the the, the solution rather than completely abandoning the whole problem mm -hmm. uh, in 2015 was when i came across telemedicine which is basically giving advice online msf uh, doctors without borders were doing it and a few other organizations were doing it i came up north uh, to Liverpool to start my training in radiology and I saw that they were sharing scans from one hospital to another uh, and I um, met up an inspirational doctor um, who had been working in Africa and was using telemedicine, Dr. Ucas, Elizabeth Ucas. So through those chats it, it struck me that why can't we use telemedicine in Afghanistan uh, and, and this may be the solution. So then I uh, went back to the Ministry of Public Health and I told him, oh, I've come up with this amazing solution, which is telemedicine, which I didn't have much clue over. Um, <laughs> and I convinced him to negotiate with me. And they told me like, yeah, OK, we will uh, get these equipments for you, get them ready uh, because it requires Internet connection. It requires monitors on this end. And on, in, in the UK, I had no idea what I was going to do. But I knew that in the UK, I had people who would provide support in Afghanistan, they wanted support. And what was missing was the equipment and telemedicine in between and how to do it. So that was my mission. Um, it didn't, again, after about six months, um, I soon figured out that it's not going to work out because, uh, well, again, the equipment is expensive. Well, it's even like this call today. So we're all using conferencing software. You have to log in, you have to use a passcode, you have to set it all up. And I think what's genius about what you've done with uh, Teleheal, uh, Arian Teleheal, is all those volunteers who were like, yeah, well, he will help, but what about the bombs? They can just do it via their WhatsApp. Yeah, so um, then when nothing worked, then I the light bulb moment for me was when I saw that um, everybody was using smartphone on the ground a cheap replica phones that were taking better pictures than my smartphone that I took from the UK. And they were using social media, Viber, Skype. And I said, hang on, can we tap into this? So that was a light bulb moment. Um, then I'll fast forward that, that that became the core means of bringing experts from the UK in contact with medical doctors on the ground in Afghanistan. And through encrypted social media on smartphones is how they communicate with each other they save lives, they enhance education and promote peace. So that was it. Uh, the government allowed us to pilot with five hospitals initially. The survey showed that it was saving lives and enhancing education. And then we signed uh, an MOU, Memorandum for Understanding, to expand throughout Afghanistan. In 2017, our charity went on to expand to uh, Syria. 
Uh, and after that, we started developing partnerships with various organizations. BBC did a documentary on our work, which is called Wahid's Wars. It was narrated very kindly by John Simpson, and that was broadcast in the UK and globally. Uh, and that's when so many other people came in from various countries in the in the US, in Canada, Australia. So, oh, we love the idea. We would like to help. Uh, you know, so that's how the volunteers started coming in. And I kept talking in various conferences to recruit people. Uh, so on one hand, the recruitment was going. On the other hand, partnerships were developing. And uh, so now before the pandemic, uh, we even went to Africa. We have partnership with Health Education England. Um, and recently, throughout the pandemic, we've been helping on the front line, fighting COVID in Afghanistan and Syria, uh, as well as recently with India. In, in India, we're doing it through a partnership with another organization called uh, BAPI, which is British Association of Physicians of Indian Origin. And through them, they have they brought in 650 volunteers of their own. And that brings me to one of the, the final points that I would like to make is that partnerships are really key when you're trying to do something, skill a solution globally. We can't do it on our own. We really have to look in a way that how we can fuse on one hand, use the power of technology, simplicity of technology rather, rather than complexity. But on the other hand, how can we tap into people's compassion? I wouldn't say volunteers. How can you tap into people's compassion? People forget that. It's not, people would not give away their time. We, we, our time is too precious. If we can manage to find a way to, to get into people's mode of humanity, you can create magic. Whether even it's for business, we do not for non-profit, but we, even if it's recruiting for business, I think it's really important to find people, the right people who actually are, one, interested, and secondly, you can see the real human in them. What do they want to do in their life? Why do they want to come and help you? And that's the first question I ask whoever wants to volunteer for us, or even if they want to raise money or uh, do fundraising. I just ask them that one question, why do you want to do it? And if they give me a good enough reason, I said, yes, please do. You know, some people, they would um, uh, donate, bring in some donation through um, their wedding, birthdays, running or something else. It's fantastic. But they said, oh, we're really inspired by saving lives. That's good enough for me. As long as there are no political agendas, there are no uh, religious agendas or something like that. I think one thing that you said previously that um, can be transposed across any kind of dream, not just what, what you're doing, is the larger the vision, the more inspired you will become. And it does seem from everything that we've discussed, and obviously listeners, we've sort of condensed it down, uh, but uh, but at every single juncture, the dream, the fantasy, the imagination, it's been big. There's been no small dream running along here. We're talking about really big goals and really big dreams and really what could sound like far-fetched fantasies, but along the, but you've achieved them and you are achieving them. You're absolutely right. I think the bigger the dream, the more inspiring it can be for us to keep us moving, but it has to start somewhere. It has to start somewhere, and I think starting with small steps is the practical way to achieving them. So if we can take one step at a day, that's good enough. It's about progress. It's about how much we are marching in the right direction. Um, so now I'm talking a little bit more uh, in terms of innovation here. 
but uh, even if you ask Elon Musk or somebody else, they, they talk about going to the moon. But in one of his interviews, he clearly says that uh, even if you, if I can't do it, I will have moved the needle a little bit more forward. And that's something genius is that wouldn't, that's something that wouldn't let somebody like him or, or somebody else who's achieved so much um, or they've achieved so much give up is because they always don't lose the sight. They said, you know, let's keep moving. Um, and having patience as well. I think it's for some people, they want quick solutions, quick resolutions. Um, on one hand, it's good to be that determined to do something quickly, but it can backfire. You know, if you can't see results, whether it's about nutrition, whether it's about exercise or anything else, it does take a long time, whether it's about business, building it. Um, it does require a lot of patience, but as long as we have that determination combined with the vision and the dream, that can keep us going and find fun ways to deal with it. And I still have fun, you know, being so busy with things. As soon as I get bored doing something, uh, that I actually question it. Do I have to do it? If I'm being bored, am I doing the right thing? Time is too precious and life is too short. There are just so many lessons to take from you. And I have interviewers' anxiety that this whole time your WhatsApp is pinging in there are scans that need your attention. So um, I will thank you for your time. And it is honestly, listeners, the book is incredible. And thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing your insights and for... It is so inspiring to dream big, to keep going, to persevere, to not take no for an answer, to not believe in can't, to see the value in kindness in other people. There are so many rich and wonderful, valuable lessons, Wahid. So thank you so much for sharing them with me and my excellent listeners. Thank you so much to yourself, to your listeners. Hopefully we'll come back at it in the future. Uh, we will tackle probably a smaller section next time. <laughs> uh, you know, how to do things, maybe mental health or something else. But yes, I hope it's resonated. I hope it's been helpful. Uh, and absolutely. So I hope the listeners never give up. Uh, I will end on that note. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that conversation with Waheed and me useful and inspiring also. If you would like to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. Don't forget, there's also that Facebook group. Join the group by clicking the link in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. And we would love to see you in there. And I would also ask very kindly, if you... Have the time if you feel inclined. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave me a five-star review or a thumbs up or a click or whatever it is um, that your preferred podcast platform allows. It would be so nice to, um, to see those reviews and find out what you are thinking. So thank you so much for your time. I will see you on the next one.